the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson. I am joined by my special guest co-host for today's entire show. That is my hubby of over two decades, Kevin Sampson. Great to be with you, babe. Great to have you. Uh, Kevin, you know, we've talked about marriage. We've talked about self-care. We've talked about leadership discouragement. We've talked about advocacy. And I want to take a little bit of turn here and kind of just talk about grief heartache and uh, some of the material that I, I write about pretty consistently. It is now been over a year since my best friend Jen died. It's now been yeah. over two and a half years since your mom died, which is just wild. Um, what has it been like to process? Oh, we'll go back and forth on this, but what has it been like to be a church leader and process grief for your mom and your family and that kind of thing. Yeah, as a church leader, I I think I mean I'll just just as a person, I think Yeah. Um I processing has been good with people. I've been really surprised by one how many others have you know lost a a parent uh, too soon, yeah. And the way that they've, you know, just encouraged me and and connected with me, who people I just didn't know that well, but had a similar journey, and so they uh, were willing to kind of share share in that grief with me. Yeah, um, yeah. And and then it it kind of helped kind of expand my heart for others. I think mm. being able to just see, wow, there's this whole kind of whole world of people who, yeah. Uh, have walked with this and then yeah so it's it's been a yeah a, gr- a great journey to connect with others uh, around that and um, mm. yeah how how about you it's been a year since since our good friend Jen yeah. passed away and yeah. we're actually coming up on the anniversary of uh, so especially I know especially this season what's this like for you um yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the anniversary was was back in December, but it it is strange to be kind of like circling back in the new year now. Um, like after that, um, what's it been like? It's like I finally hit me the other day. It's like walking through losing someone without the person who would have helped you if you lost someone. Do you know what I mean? Like, like she would have been, let's say I lost a different friend or went through some other, you know, difficult season. Like Jen would have been the support person, you know what I mean? And so going through Jen's loss without Jen's presence has been very, um, like my footing's been a little shaken, right? It's felt yeah. a little, it just felt a little kind of dis, 
disequal. I don't haven't had equilibrium. Um, now I have lots of great friends. You're a great support. Um, I've been grateful that Justin Jen's husband has really allowed us to be a part of his grief. That's ministered to me in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, it's strange. I mean, and I, you know, I know that, um, I don't know. It's grief is a weird thing. Cause it's so like, like death is so, well, we know it's so evil and it just doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like I, and I sort of think that's the, the point of grief is that it's nonsensical, right? Like, but it, it's just weird to try to make sense of like someone just not there anymore and not coming back. And I don't know. I mean, it's just very hard to find the right language for like what this thing is called grief. And you almost don't know what it is until you walk through it. Um, and I've been in seasons of grief before, but you know, and even losing your mom was a season of grief, but I would say Jen is certainly by far the the closest person I've ever lost. And just the nature of her being young and leaving behind three young sons and Justin, who we're really close to, like, it just has kind of some added, added like, Oh, to it. Yeah. Um, So what do you do with your mm -hmm. big feelings? (laughs) Great question. Um, I, you know, I'm a feeler, as you know, Kevin, you've been married to me for a long time. Um, yes, yes, you are a feeler in a great uh, way. Thank you. Uh, I, I shed lots of tears and I write a lot. I early on at right when Jen died, I was really struggling to sleep. I was up, you know, at the wee hours of the night and there was a woman at our church that had just had twins and she was up nursing them. And she was like, you can text me anytime you want to in the middle of the night. And so I would text her like 2am, 3am, Hey, I'm up. I can't sleep. And I don't, she must've been up all the time because she would inevitably text right back. And she'd be like, get up and write. You need to be writing. God told me you need to be writing. And so I would like get up at like 2am, 3am and just write until I finally felt like I could fall asleep. But I think that's kind of, I I have told you before, Kevin, I think with my fingers, I pray with my fingers. And what I mean by that is my fingers on a keyboard typing. And so I think that's helped me process. I also think there are times when even as a big feeler, like because I feel things pretty deeply, I just kind of can't go there. And so I've really needed to just be like, no, not right now. Like right now I'm watching Netflix. Right now I'm playing a game. Right now I'm doing something else because it can just, it can kind of feel like, if I start to go there, I'm never going to come out of it. And I've got a few precious friends who have tried to like lean in and like, let's re- t- tell me how you are. No, how are you really? Like people mean yeah. really well yeah. when they do that. And it's like, you know, there are some people I'm going to carve out the time and like do the how am I really? But sometimes I just don't want to go there with you. And it's not because I don't love you or trust you. It's it's just that like, it's too heavy. And right now, let's just have fun chatting about life. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Um, that's even been a little surprising for me as a feeler that I've wanted to just be like, nope, I need a break from this. It's too much. Um, I will say a strange thing and, you know, we might could even continue talking about this. Um, I, I've been in this, I've been in what I think is something called a dark night of the soul, which is not always brought on by grief. I think sometimes in our current vernacular, we hear people talk about the dark night of the soul as like, 
just kind of general depression or like a midlife crisis or mm -hmm. a spiritual crisis or something like that. And that's not really it. Dark Night of the Soul is an ancient um, spiritual experience, psychological more than theological. It's coined by um, some Spanish Catholic folks back in the 16th century. Uh, they were reformers in the Catholic church at the same time, Martin Luther and John Calvin, and then were reforming and becoming Protestant. Uh, St. Yeah. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila were also reformers in Spain. They just stayed within the Catholic Church. But they wrote about this experience of the dark night of the soul. Scripture references it, but you won't find that phrase in Scripture, where God intentionally removes his presence from you. And it's not because of sin. It's not because even of hardship or grief. It's just like something God sometimes does. C.S. Lewis wrote about this too, like as, as if God is a parent teaching a toddler to walk. Sometimes the parent takes their hand away from the toddler. So the toddler will kind of walk yeah. on their own, like sort of a season like that. And I, again, it's not always brought on by grief and pain, but unfortunately I feel like for me, this dark night of the little experience, God's obscurity and God kind of removing the sense of his presence, not his actual presence, but the sense of his presence has coincided with my grief. And so that's been difficult, like to not have, Jen, and then to not feel like I have God's comfort um, mm -hmm. has not been super enjoyable for me. And so I really had to lean into like, okay, but somehow this is love and somehow God's showing me something and somehow God's teaching me something. It's like, I think in my year of grief, I've had to really lean into like, okay, what do I know about God? What do I know about God from the river that yeah. I need to hold on to in the desert? you know, or like, what do I know about God in the light that I need to hold on to now in the dark? And so it's been a, it's been a weird, it's been a weird season. And I just think of our listeners, if any of you are in experience of grief, or maybe what I'm talking about a dark night of the soul, you know, I think the promises that God is always with us, the promises that God is coming towards us with love, the promises that God is doing something new. And I think our ask is to hold on and to stay faithful even in those difficult times. Well, we'll continue these conversations with my special guest co-host when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Uh, you know, I have like hinted and intimated about this at The Common Good, but never really unpacked for our Listeners, you're in a doctoral program right now at Northern <laughs> Seminary, yep. and uh, I've kind of talked about some of the research that you've done, but I haven't really, really talked. I've maybe said Kevin's doing research, but I haven't sure. talked about what it is or what you found. And so I thought that might be kind of interesting for you to unpack for our listeners, like what in the world are you doing getting your doc doctorate in uh, contextual theology? And what is this research you've been focusing on? Good, sir. Yeah, most recently it was um, so contextual theology is about and it's doing theology from the bottom up. So most theology is done from the kind of ivory tower kind mm. of academic position. Contextual theology is um, in a lot of ways it's based on the incarnation of Jesus. Like it's just what is God doing on the ground in particular places in particular people's lives, and. That and like the theology kind of bubbles up from there. Um, so yeah, I'll try to, I'll try to kind of not over speak this, <laughs> these things, but most, yeah, most recently I was, uh, we lead a multi ethnic church. Yep. And so we are, uh, daily just at the crossroads of, uh, of Ephesians two and three. Like, what does it look like, uh, to, 
forgot to really, you know, cultivate a multi-ethnic family, um, it, breaking down ethnic racial divides, creating a whole new people. And so I was been kind of just asking the question, what's a, what are the obstacles I think for, I'm going to use terms like white people. Um, sure. uh, and I don't mean that pejoratively. It's just more of a, a way of, of getting at under, trying to understand something. What is the, what I see is a lot of white people who desire to be involved and engaged with, um, in a multi-ethnic life, um, but have a really hard time doing it. Mm, and so I, the question was like, what are the obstacles? What's, what's kind of hard about it, especially, uh, for people who go to church and go to a multi-ethnic church and like want to do this. So that was kind of my question. And so I talked to a handful of, uh, of white folks and who are, you know, faithful followers of Jesus yeah. and, uh, to try to kind of unearth some of these uh, obstacles. And it was really interesting. Really? <laughs> some of the, some of the things like, uh, one, there is just like a, just a really a strong desire uh, to know people of other races and ethnicities and really be in relationship, mm. like real relationship. So that mm. was just, there's, yeah, there's just a real strong desire. Um, so that was confirmed the some of the obstacles were uh, most uh just about every white person i had talked to their story they were really raised in just a white bubble um they had in their really early formative years church school uh neighborhood they just had no relationships um with people um, of other ethnicities, uh, other races, and so um, one of the so one of the obstacles is like they just never really knew anybody uh, in in any substantial way, and so um, seeing that relational barrier uh, mm. was, is I think really helpful. Um, yeah, that's big. Um, I also like some of the things the religious communities that. Uh, these people were formed in all were uh, showed just some signs of resistance to uh, really multi-ethnic living and really uh, so an example would be uh, there was uh, one of the uh, one of the people that I had talked to and, and everyone had some of these similar stories um, it became um it it would turn into a political discussion rather than like mm. we're just trying to care for people. And so, so for instance, there was a uh, there was someone who said, "Yeah, we." They had heard in their neighborhood that uh, they heard from a, a pastor, a black female pastor, that they would only send their kids. Uh, they told their kids not to go into any homes in the neighborhood uh, th- unless they had a Black Lives Matter sign. Um, in their house. So like, if there was any trouble going on in the neighborhood and they were kind of running around like kids do, yeah. um, this black female pastor had said their kids not to go to a house that doesn't have one of those signs. Wow. Wow. And so so wow. this, this person in particular, they decided as a family, like we're going to put a black lives matter sign in our, in our front yard. Cause we to really say want, we're a safe house. We, yeah. We want all, all the kids in their neighborhood, which is mm. a diverse neighborhood to yeah. know that this is a safe place. Wow. 
Well, it, it really, uh, um, when they did that, it just turned into like a conflict and stuff among their family. Sure. Um, I'm sure it does. So yeah, it became, yeah, there became issues Mm -hmm. with that. And so, I mean, that kind of story played itself out over and over and over again. So Mm. what do I saw in the research is, uh, our religious communities are really stopping us from um, engaging in, uh, just unhindered multi-ethnic mm. life. Wow. And so th- that was, that was probably the, the, the biggest one. So we don't, most of us don't have, most white people don't have, you know, substantial relationships with people who are different than them. Who are not white. Right. And yeah. then, and then most are, have been raised in and are still connected to family and kind of their uh, religious community that is actually hindering them hmm. from doing really engaging in multi-ethnic, like really faithful gospel living. Hmm. <clears throat> so it, it can, yeah, there, there's more I could say, but I think those were, yeah, really tough to swallow. Um, now what did that like, okay. So that's, you know, that's some research. What did that, what for our, for our listeners, Okay. What would you kind of challenge them like to, to maybe consider they're not, no one's going to leave their family of origin. Right. And nobody's going to, you can't really apologize for the religious background that you came from. Like you just have to work with it and accept that somehow God sovereignly is using that in your life. But what would you maybe encourage pastorally the listener who wants to be a little more engaged in a multi-ethnic life to do? You need to find voices and people who are not like you, who don't look like you, who are just different than you politically, mm. yeah, racially, ethnically, economically. And you just need to listen. Mm. You just need to listen and you need to listen for a long time. And, mm. and I think that's the number probably number one place to start. Are you specifically speaking to white people right now? Or would you say that's true for everybody? Yeah, I would say I'm speaking specifically to white people. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just there just needs to be a lot of listening. And Mm. I would say like you need to build relationships um, primarily with people who are different than you. But that relationship needs to kind of happen as a white person from a place of listening hmm. and, uh, and let the, yeah, let the person, let the other person, uh, and other people, uh, sh- kind of share their stories and shape your understanding of who they are and, hmm. and what they believe and what life is like. Hmm. And so I think that's the, just a lot of listening. And, and just so, one yeah, final so question, speak. Kevin, like how, like, and how, what does that, how does that connect with the gospel? Like what, like, why does that even matter? I guess, especially for the Christian. Man, there's, there's so, there's so many things. I, I think when Revelation seven, the picture of, uh, of heaven and new creation is one of the clearest pictures we have is of people of every nation, tribe, and tongue standing side by side, uh, worshiping Jesus. And, um, and so our, our future, our ultimate, uh, end is, 
is this multi-ethnic picture of really giving glory to Jesus Christ. And so I think Jesus is starting to do that in our lives now. And one day he will bring it to completion. And so we get to show uh, really a picture of, of heaven and who God is the, um, the more we, yeah, step into that kind of life. Um, I think that's one thing and there's many more, but I, I just think God has something more for us when we, uh, live in the way that he's calling us to. That's so fantastic, Kevin. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I thought of a story and then I found a list like it. So I, I want to tell you, when I, you know, going growing up, you go to other people's houses. Yes. And you remember like just some people had different house rules than you have at your house, right? Oh, and yeah. some of it understandable, like you can't wear shoes in the house. Fine. That's, that's totally meaningful. In some places, that's really cultural. Uh, other house rules, sometimes you're like, wait, what? Like it was hard to understand when it wasn't the norm at your home. So this one is the most bizarre house rule. I've never forgotten it. A friend of mine growing up, her name was Kelly. When we had sleepovers at her house, she would have like three or four of us spend the night at the same time. Good, good old fashioned girl sleepover party. But her parents would only let us use one towel. And I don't mean one towel each. I mean, if we showered, we had to share the same towel. (laughs) So all four of us were only allowed to use one towel. And looking back on that, I'm like, I know they weren't struggling financially. I know they had enough towels. I don't know if like, did was Kelly in charge of the laundry and she just didn't want to do it? Or was it like just this weird, they didn't like to use a lot of water like i don't know what the deal was but that is the most bizarre house rule i've ever been a part of one towel per four girls that is that is funny it's interesting because i mean as (laughs) growing up as a boy at at sleepovers don't ever remember wondering about the towels i don't think we ever took showering you were showering Um, do you remember anything like that like going to friends houses and they have a weird rule or did your mom have weird rules? oh yeah i know yeah like just different places like some like some people's houses you could be loud and like yeah, yeah, than others right. it was just felt like a monastery <laughs> you had to be really quiet and, right right and some of those were uh and i think yeah me my house you know was probably in between yeah um and but yeah some places you just had to be like really quiet so, yeah and even the way some other like families did dinner yeah that was that, that was, was like culture culture yeah, very making. different yeah um, not just the foods, but just it was somebody like sit down. It felt like more like a proper dinner, like a formal dinner. And, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I can remember this one family in particular, just like almost being nervous. Like I wasn't raised by wolves. But, like <laughs> right. I would be like, I don't. I have memories of that too. Like I don't know what to do at this dinner table. And I grew up in a very southern, like proper home. Yeah. But like we, even that, I remember that. The other thing that's kind of different is like, uh, don't you think the snack? Like the quality of snacks, house to house. Like oh, man. Some moms, man, they bought the Rice Krispie treats and they bought the name brand potato chips and the name brand cereal. And then some mom bought the, like the off-brand macaroni and cheese that just wasn't as good as the real mac and well, cheese. I grew up in an all generic <laughs> oh, man. mac home and uh. I owe a lot of, of my friends' moms growing up a huge thank you and... <laughs> Because I was, I would eat all kinds of snacks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
Okay, I found this list on BuzzFeed. I'm going to share some of these with you. It's kind of the same concept, like other people's homes rules. You found it. Here's one. At my best friend's house, the kids have to say, I tooted or I popped instead of I farted or would they would get in big trouble. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our, my house growing up, it was the, the F word. The F word was fart. Oh, okay. I was like, Kevin, you can't say that on the radio. Okay. That nice. was that was like I know. I did, just to put you all these, that was so we couldn't yeah, for whatever reason, my dad he's still this way. He hates to hear that word said. He does. All. Your dad does hate to hear that word. Okay, this one is worse than the tallow one. I'm reading it on BuzzFeed. It is really bad. Get ready for it. Wait, it's hold been, on. Oh, the yeah. towel one isn't like the worst thing in the world. I was okay, also I was gonna say like maybe they just we're trying to find ways to say, we don't want all you girls sleeping over here. <laughs> or don't take a shower or something like that. Oh, so, yeah. Maybe listen this Listen to this one, though. Good. This one's really bad, okay? Uh, I had a sleepover with a best friend. Four, she had four other siblings. We were all told to take a bath because we had to go somewhere the next day. It was my turn, and I found out that they had a rule that they reuse the bath water. So I had to bathe in cold bath water that had already been used and then leave the water for the next kid i never spent the night there again <laughs> yeah i guess i'd come back to like like i just like you know, we never thought about bathing that <laughs> a know, sleepover like, party yeah. but that's a disgusting rule like you can't act like even if you didn't like sharing the bath water between people and guests yeah that is no, that's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely especially if it was warm it'd be one thing but yeah. a cold ooh. Okay, this one I actually can relate to. This will be the last one we share. My great aunt wouldn't let kids inside during the day. And when we visited, if it was mealtime, she would just hand the plate out the window to us. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think that's, I think that one. Yeah, I think when there's a bunch of kids at our house, I do, I am like, go outside and maybe I'll give you food. Um, yeah, I think that's like the best way to do it. That's, that's the best way to do it. Okay. I, I know I said that was the last one. I just feel like I have to say one more. Okay. This one's kind of funny. My friend's parents had a rule that you had to say no, please. So when her brother was harassing me by pulling my hair and I told him no, they stood there watching and said I had to say please at the end. <laughs> <laughs> that's like you've lost the plot line a little bit there you've lost what's, yeah. what's most important hey coming up next kevin and i are going to end the show by talking about raising teenage sons should be a fun one you're listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life raising teen sons i had i just found a few weeks ago old pictures of our kids on Christmas morning and they were so little and their faces oh, were so precious yeah. and chubby and like now they're old and they care about their hair and like our youngest is in braces and it is like a different I love Baby. this age I love this age but it is it's different as what, a yeah, what's what is it like for you Aubrey three teenage boys oh man it's first of all like I said it's very fun they are very fun. People ask me all the time, do they fight all the time? Are they always wrestling? And our boys just don't do that. Like, it's just weird. They never have. They've never been physical with one another. Like, sometimes, no, our, it's, it's sometimes our middle... Some of them are always, like, Well, sometimes, 
sometimes our middle son will like pick up our younger son and that annoys him. Like he'll be like, get away from me. So that, but like they don't get on the floor and wrestle or fight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That they They don't don't do that. Yeah. So, um, but I will say our middle son annoys our younger son when he like picks him up and won't let him go. So that might be the closest thing to wrestling that we have. Um, What's it like for me? I don't know. It's fun. Like they're very enjoyable. I enjoy like, sharing life with them and and just kind of engaging with them in a different way now that they're older but it certainly is different for me as a mom when they used to always like want to sit on my lap and do things with me and go to the store with me and they don't want to do any of that anymore which is sad they are very affectionate they all want to hug and help and things like that but like nobody's sitting on mom's lap anymore those days are over what are some of the things that have surprised you about being a mom to teenage boys? Like if you go back and tell, mm. you know, yourself 10 years ago, like these, this is going to be really surprising or this is going to be exciting or. Um, I think we've intentionally raised pretty independent kids. Like, like I've not when they were little, but as they've become teenagers, I've been like, no, you have to do your own laundry. I can't also do your laundry because I'm doing mine and a million other things. No, you need to pack your own school lunch. I can't pack your school lunch. I'll buy the ingredients you need for your school lunch, but like that's on you, you know? So I've, I've done that. I think you and I've done that very intentionally because I've wanted them to be able to be the boys in college who can do their own laundry and make their own beds and tend to their own needs. Like I knew a lot of guys in college who like didn't even know how to start a washing machine. And I was like, who raised you? Um, what what I think going back to my younger self, I would have said was like, what that independence also means is like emotional independence. <laughs> and so they're like, not going to want to hang out with you all the time like they used to. They're not going to yeah. like, it, like, I used to be able to be like, let's sit down and snuggle and watch a movie. And they'd be like, okay, mom, let's get popcorn. And let's, you know, and now they're like, no, nah, we want to go downstairs. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So, yeah. and that's normal teenhood like they should be starting to spread their wings a little bit but it definitely it definitely can be like okay well i'm married to kevin he's the my boys are leaving and i'll watch tv with kevin for the rest of my life (laughs) kevin and i'll snuggle watching movies not the boys (laughs) so yeah there's some bittersweetness in it certainly but i i do love this season because when they're dependent on you for everything that's taxing it's beautiful it's precious but it requires a lot so you said uh, you love the season several times. What do you love about this season? I mean, like the other night, this was back in December, We, I had bought this really cheesy Christmas craft, like ugly Christmas sweaters. And I was like, there's no way they're going to do this, but we'll just see what happens. And like, they got so into it. They're like, yeah, let's do it. And they just like right away opened it up. We did it. And th- things like that, like we can play cards. We can go out to movies. We can go to dinner. We can relate. We can relate. It's not friend to friend. Like we're still their parents. We still parent them all the time, but there is a, like with their own maturity, there's a little different time of family enjoyment uh, that is a bit sweeter and not as cumbersome as it used to be in the past where it was like, um, I'm just thinking of like, you could not sit down and play a card game with them unless it was like go fish, which after a while gets yeah. tedious and tedious and horrifying. You know what I mean? But now we can actually play like fun card games or uh, it's just, I guess, relating to them at just a little bit more of an age, an older age level. I enjoyed this age of parenting. 
I yeah. will be sad when they leave the house, and I know that's coming too. What about you? What's teenage parenting of boys been like for you as a boy yourself, a man yourself? I I have, like you, I have enjoyed this season more than any other season. Yeah. For similar reasons. Some of it's the ind- the independence yeah. is really helpful. Uh, and it just, yeah, they can do a lot of things for themselves. So you could just engage with them as people. Yeah. Um, and they could, they could, they could get their own food. They could do their yep. own laundry and, yep. um, I think you, you I sound like really great parents. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love their senses of humor. All totally. Of oh, they're, they're all, all so funny. They're all different. Yeah. But I just, I love their senses of humor and the, the way they, um, I think there's just a lot of laughter in our home and that's just grown over the years. And, um, and I, yeah, so I think that's, uh, I really enjoy that. Um, I think being able to do more activities together, like the hiking things we do. Yeah, that's um, big. That, that really is, uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, like a dream come true. You know, I know yeah. The boys, they like it at different levels, maybe not as much as me. Totally. Um, But they they do enjoy it and we enjoy it together. And um, and so being able to just, yeah, do activities, uh, have conversations about normal things. Yeah. um, Kind of at more, you know, more of an adult adult level. Right. Um, What about uh, about the future? Like, what do you feel like you're intentionally pouring into them? Uh, you know, kind of as we think about launching them into the future. How am I? I think I'm. I I, it's, I think I see that that like I as a parent and as their dad, I have a lot of influence, but I don't have a lot of control. Hmm. And so that's kind of um, so. I think in a lot of ways it's helped me say like, what kind of life am I living uh, yeah. with them? Yeah. Um, but I think like, like throughout the Christmas season, you know, we've been doing this since they were little, like just reading scripture together, doing the Advent candle and, um, just really making conversation about Jesus, just a little more normalized. Um, we talk, I know we joke in our family, you may not appreciate me saying this on the air, but we talk like I talk openly about how do you treat women and how do you, uh, you know, your bodies and the changes and, and all that stuff. I like and, the, how do we treat women part? I don't, I don't want to hear yeah. about the other part. And, uh, um, yeah, just wanting to like really normalize, um, yeah, how to treat women and, and how to think about, um, really treating other people. Um, and, and yeah, treating our bodies and the way we use our bodies and, and our sexuality and, and those kinds of things. And, um, so yeah, just really trying to help them connect, you know, really all the feelings as a teenage adult with, uh, with Jesus and, um, what, it, what it means to, to live that way. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting stuff. A new season of parenting we are in. Well, Kevin, then, thanks so much for being here with us today. It was so fun to have you. We we shot to all fields, uh, and I appreciate you going there with me. We did. You're a great mom. Our boys oh. love you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hey, we'll be back again 
From 4 to 6 p.m. for Kevin Sampson, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.